So probably you remember the uh, story a couple weeks ago of the Costa Concordia, the cruise ship that, you know, came too close to the rocky shores of Italy and, you know, ended up having that horrible tragedy. I don't know if you've read any of the news reports, but you can imagine, you know, it's completely dark in there. Uh, the ship is, you know, listing very much to one side. Um, it's utter panic. And according to the news reports that I've seen, the crew was kind of befuddled themselves and not being much help. But then imagine a man, just a man, with no authority of his own, apparently, not even any authority delegated to him by the crew, but just a man. And he begins to act with authority. I mean, the crew had been saying, go up, no, go down to the fourth deck, go right, go left. And suddenly, just this man stands in the midst of them with nothing about him externally, no badge like a cop, no uniform like a fireman, but just a man. And he stands up and he begins to act with this authority that saves people. Well, something like that is what is going on in our gospel reading this morning. Who is this man? He doesn't dress like the Pharisees. He's not one of the teachers of the law. He doesn't come with some sort of a letter from Jerusalem. There's, you know, he doesn't seem to even have any kind of authorization from the temple. Who is this man? Well, the reading in Deuteronomy, uh, you might wonder how the heck does a reading from Deuteronomy get uh, uh, attached to Epiphany? Well, it's this way. When the text says, the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites and that you must listen obediently to him, Stephen in Acts 7 tells us that ultimately that prophet was Jesus. And you know that many times when Jesus comes on the scene, people say of him, oh, well, he's a prophet. And I think I've said this to you before, but it, it bears repeating again. They were not saying, by saying he's a prophet, that he's not deity. That's not what they meant to say. This was not, you know, we can't read our sort of, you know, 20th century arguments about who Jesus is into what that text was saying. They were just saying, we know you stand in this long tradition of prophets. We can see it. It's sort of like all over you. They didn't mean to say, you're not divine. You're not the Messiah. They didn't necessarily mean to say anything like that. They just meant, wow, we can see that you stand in that line. And this is what Stephen is telling this. So when the people in our reading in the gospel, if you want to look at it in your uh, bulletin, the people are amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority. Now, you've probably heard before that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they taught by quoting others. They teach the way I teach. Uh, they teach the way you have to teach when you're writing a paper in school. What is your source? And, you know, these days you have to source these things exactly the way, you know, it's, you know, are you using Turabian style or what, right? You have to source these things perfectly. 
But Jesus didn't teach that way. He didn't teach by quoting Moses or a prophet or even a more recent rabbi and sort of bounce off what some other rabbi in a a neighboring town had said. But Jesus taught with this quiet but compelling authority, something all of his own, like that man in the boat. It was something that he just possessed within him and that he exercised. And so again, when the people not only heard what he said but saw what he was doing, The gospel reading says that they were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. And how did they recognize the authority? He spoke to unclean spirits and they obeyed him and fleed. And they said, we have never seen anything like this. No other rabbi that we know of or have known of behaves in this way. Well, what is this issue of authority? It's not power. There's another Greek term for power, dunamis. This is not power. This is something different. This isn't the kind of thing where you're coerced to do something at the end of the barrel of a gun. That's a source of power. Um, It's not domination in that sense. It's not coercion. No, authority is something different. It's something more like weightiness. It's the affect that people notice of a kind of weightiness that comes from the right to do something. Authority is what Jesus has been given to act in his Father's name. This is why Jesus says over and over again, when confronted with controversial things he's doing, like healing a withered hand on the Sabbath, or speaking to a woman at a well, or allowing his disciples to eat consecrated bread, His constant answer is, I only do what I see my father doing. And that is the source of the authority that resides in Jesus. And then when he speaks and acts, people see an authority that they've never seen before. So Mark wants us to see how this works in these really dramatic power encounters. Mark's the shortest gospel in terms of just words. Um, But in Mark, there are 18 miracles. 13 times where Jesus heals people, four times where he drives out demons, and then one miracle, you might say, over uh, nature. So Mark shows us Jesus banishing evil powers, rescuing those enslaved by demonic powers, those in the grip of disease or death. And what Mark is trying to tell us in terms of epiphany is this is how Jesus's fame spread. Like, just think, like, right, we're in the season of Epiphany, the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. Mark is saying, you want to know how news about Jesus spread? You want to know how Gentiles actually found out about this obscure Jewish man from this obscure little village who had nothing going for him that would normally give him authority? You want to know how this happened? This is how it happened. He said these amazing things, and he did these amazing things, and news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is how Jesus gained his huge popularity. It was this gentle but difference-making authority. Now, I just reflecting honestly on my whole life, and I don't have any particular person in mind here. I'm not mad at anybody, not putting anybody down. But if I just honestly reflect on my 30-some years of following Christ, what I have mostly seen in religious leaders Um, who want to show that they have authority are accoutrements of power. 
special seating. What's the guy who sits on a throne? Um, uh, I mean, you could just go on and on and on where there's this sort of exterior show of power that's designed to say that I am somehow something or somebody different, but there's no real authority in it. And what Mark is saying is that in contrast, here's this Jesus who appears just like everyone else. And in fact, if you want to sort of mark him in any way, mark him by his gentleness. But when he speaks, we've never heard such authority. When he commands disease or demons, we've never seen such affect. This is Mark, what Mark wants us to see. And so they go to Capernaum. And Capernaum is, you might just think of as a great place for a street fight. Like if you were, um, if you were the location scout for a Western movie, you know, you'd be just looking for this perfect little village, you know, great place to just have a, you know, a shootout at the OK Corral. Well, Capernaum would have been a, just the perfect ancient city for a street fight. Like if there was going to be this contest of powers between this Jesus in his gentle but authoritative way and the powers that existed in the world, well, Capernaum was a great place to go. Being a port village, it had great wealth because of all the trade. It was headquarters for Roman troops. Sailors passed through. Of course, you get Roman troops and sailors and great wealth, and you've got all manner of sin and corruption and self-indulgence. It was sort of an ideal place for kingdoms in conflict. It was an ideal place for both Jews and Gentiles to see and hear the gospel. And the effect, as we read in the gospel reading this morning, is what the psalmist gets at when he says, great are the works of the Lord, glorious and majestic are his deeds. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, providing redemption for his people. He remembers his covenant forever. Don't you know that one of the eight, sorry, 14 people that Jesus healed would have been sort of the ancient version of an AIDS patient. Somebody else would have been an ancient version of somebody with some other sort of sexually transmitted disease. Somebody else would have been the victim of something that again would have made them sort of an outcast in society. And Jesus shows his authority in this gracious, compassionate way to people who are under the power of darkness. Well, what I want you to hear in this message this morning and what we're going to spend our last few minutes talking about is this. I have a hunch that the mode of the epiphany, gentle authority, is the best mode of our witness to the epiphany today. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Let me unpack that a bit. That the mode of the epiphany and this, this year in Epiphany, we're thinking about how we become conduits of the Epiphany to others, that the mode of the Epiphany is the best mode of witness, a quiet but compelling authority. Henry Nouwen, who many of you would know, has written that beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there's a deep current of despair. And while efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, There's a loneliness and isolation and lack of friendship and intimacy. There are broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness fills the hearts of millions 
in our success-oriented world. So if you would just stop for a moment and quiet yourself and just think about the Orange County that we live in, yeah, you could say that like a shipwreck, there's much to panic about in the world today. But who will stand as that man? And I mean that word to stand for humankind. Who will stand as a people? What what woman, what man is gonna stand in the midst of this with a kind of gentle authority? I think a key to our witnessing today, this is gonna surprise you a bit, but I want you to hang with me. I think a key to our witnessing today is to know that Jesus, by his own authority, has already claimed this world for good. It's done. He came. The epiphany happened. The kingdom of God was loosed. And for 2,000 years, it has been working, and someday it will be consummated. This world has already been claimed for good by this loving, quiet, but insistent authority of Jesus, who will not let evil stand. Who, when he finally has his way, will not let sickness stand. This is what's already afoot. But this fact is obscured today. And I think it's especially obscured for us here in Orange County because we have, I think, these kind of dual signals that send confusing messages to our hearts and brains. The first is we can look around us, and if you put a, you know, put a pin in a map and drew like a 20-minute driving radius around where we sit right here this morning at Vanguard, it would encompass four or five of the biggest churches in America are just all within a little driving radius of here. And so we can kind of uh, be a bit confused at what we're doing okay here in Orange County. Except for here's the deal, there's a little over three million people in Orange County. And if you add up those mega churches around us, even being generous, you come up to about 100,000 people. We'll do the math. That means there's like 3.9 or 2.9999 million people who, who say no to those churches, who are not going to those churches. If you add up all the churches in Orange County, you still end up with about 1.2 million people who are not going to anybody's church. I mean, these are facts that anybody could figure out, you know, five minutes on Google. It's not any secret. So you're talking about 1 to 1.2 million people around us who have had no epiphany of Jesus, despite of all the megachurches and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, I know these guys. I love them. I think they're fantastic. But I just want you to hear this, just sort of not hear this the way you would hear it in a college course, but hear it in a way of just sort of letting it wash over your imagination that 59% of our children have dropped out of church and they're not coming back. 38% of our children doubt their faith. 32% of our children have rejected the faith of their parents. That's what's now presently happening in the 18 to 29-year-olds. No one doubts those statistics except for maybe to say they might be worse. But hey, Holy Trinity, look me in the eye. 41% of those kids who want to come back want to come back to a place just like this. Historic, rooted, prayerful, quiet, They're not looking for something hip. That was their parents' church. 
And I'm not putting those churches down. Any of you who know me know that's not even close to in my heart. I'm simply saying, my own children are like this. What we thought was so cool, that which we invented in the 70s, that we thought was so cool is just not cool. And it's a tragedy. I still put on my mustard seed faith, you know. My Daniel Amos, whatever, you know, Keith Green, right? It's not cool. And so there is an epiphany, you might say, just waiting to break out. And so what I want you to think about this morning is, I've got to stop here, is what if being a witness simply meant being a travel guide or a concierge, especially to these young people? You know what? You know the word concierge, you wouldn't know this, I'll tell you. The word concierge comes from a medieval Latin word that meant the keeper of the candles, it was, it was a word that meant that when you rolled up to some, you know, ancient hotel in medieval times and it was dark and you couldn't find your way through the castle or whatever to your room, there would be somebody there who was the keeper of the candles and he would light a candle and catch this, guide you down a path. He would guide you down a darkened path until you had arrived at the place for which you had come. Well, what if being a witness today was just that simple? just sort of being a guide? What if it was friendship versus an agenda? I, one of the things I love doing, I shouldn't start talking about evangelism, it's gonna be hard to stop at 20 minutes. Um, but I just taught my class on evangelism here on Tuesday nights, we just had one of my most fun discussions, we do it every semester, where I get the kids talking about, you know, Um, Is it okay to make a friendship if what you're intending to do is witness to that person? Is that okay or is that a relational foul ball? And I love to just let the tension rise in the room as kids will say, no, you cannot make a friend with the intention of witnessing to them. Oh my God, that's the biggest relational foul ball ever. And then some other kid will raise their hand and go, yeah, but what about Jesus said, go into all the world. And he told us that we were supposed to really be intentional about making discipleships. And I just let the tension rise and rise and rise and rise so that they can feel that that's actually what's happening in our culture today. But what if that isn't the, what if there's a third way? What if it doesn't have to be that sort of over, I mean, that sort of false dualism? What if we can just have a conversation with a friend versus closing the deal on a sales call? What if we can be more like an usher at a play? Well, you know, if you go to the Hollywood Bowl and it's dark and somebody's showing you to your seat, they're not the play. They're not even the owners of the play. They're facilitating something happening. And what if witnessing could be like that? Again, quoting now in whom I love, he says, the mystery of faith sharing, I'm paraphrasing here, the mystery of faith sharing is that we've been chosen by God to make our own limited and very, sorry, very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. And so, you know, those of you who know Henry, you can imagine that Henry would wonder something like this. In a culture dominated by power, not authority, but in a culture dominated by power, can we lay down power as the first act of witnessing? What if we just sort of freely yielded what had been our previous position of privilege in society and said that we willingly give it up? Because here's what's normal in humankind. Any attempt to do anything almost always starts with seeking capacity, control, dominance, or power. I mean, anything. If you want to be elected to an office, you're going to be looking for all of those things. 
If you wanna start a business, you're gonna be looking for all of those things. But now and in his genius says, the temptation to power, the temptation to power is that it's an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It was easier when we could just have sort of power over our culture because we were in the majority. But now as we become increasingly in the minority, I think we are gonna have to lay down that privileged position. And this final thought, this is what I think Paul is instructing us to do in this passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to believers who they understand, they know that eating food sacrificed to idols, which don't really exist, are not wrong. It's not a big deal. Nothing happened to the meat when it was sacrificed because since there's no idols, they're not really gods. Nothing's really happening there. And so people who, who are now Christians and who grew up around this their whole lives, their consciences weren't troubled by it. But other people for whom it wasn't familiar, they were new Christians, their consciences were troubled. And so Paul just simply says, you need to be considerate of one another, that love is more important than knowledge. Whereas Eugene gets it in the message, humble hearts help more than proud minds. So the logic for Paul is something like this. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't that weak, conscious person, wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because after all, as you say, it doesn't make any difference. Well, if it doesn't make any difference, wouldn't you at least give that up for someone who's trying to find their way into the faith? Well, as we turn now to a moment of quiet, I want you to just sit with this thought for a few seconds this morning. Do you have any sense of divine authority? Kind of a spiritual version of that man on the boat. Any sense of that last part in John where Jesus said, or or John says of Jesus that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and then said, even as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And I'm wondering this morning if you can just, in your heart of hearts, get a little connection to a gentle authority that can be both a light and a source of healing in our world. Amen.